0: God allowed communism to fall and he allowed Jewish people from all over the world and you go to Israel today, why'd you come? I don't know why I came. God put an eagerness and a desire in my heart to come here. Why? Because God is setting the stage and before there can be a spiritual rebirth, there must be a physical regathering of Israel.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans and have spent the past several weeks in the Applicational section, chapters 12-16, through which the Apostle Paul wrote to show how to live out the Christian life. Today we begin a message entitled, God's Clock, which wraps up Romans chapter 13. Most of this chapter has dealt with government and the Christians' interaction with it. But the last few verses are a reminder to christians that time is drawing closer to the day when christ will return and so paul admonishes us that in light of this event we are to more than ever exhibit behavior that reflects our position in christ
0: what time is it no i don't mean your time i mean god's time what time is it on god's clock Well, God is going to tell us this morning in our passage of Scripture, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we want to begin this morning precisely where we left off in verse 11 of Romans chapter 13, follow along in your Bible, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Some of us have very little difficulty in waking up in the morning while others struggle to get their eyes open and to get their bodies in gear and their feet on the floor. I suppose no two of us are exactly alike. Some people wake up starving to death, like my granddaughter recently It's 6 a.m. Granddaddy, I want lucky charms. <laughs> Some people, they wake up and they find food repulsive. Some have to have their morning coffee or orange juice. Other people wake up very fast, like one of my roommates in college, every morning he'd tear the covers off, he'd pull up the blinds, he'd say, get up, Carl, we're going running. Then he got married. That didn't last very long, I promise you. (laughs) Waking up. There are 55 references in the Word of God to waking up. Most of them are in reference to literal sleep, but some of them are in reference to spiritual sleep, to waking up out of our spiritual lethargy, our spiritual laziness, God is not speaking in our text this morning of literal waking up out of sleep, but He's speaking of waking up spiritually because there's a spiritual dullness that can overshadow even the people of God. And so I want us to understand what time it is on God's clock. If you have a note-taking outline there in your bulletin, there are three simple truths that you might want to jot down this morning for further reflection this week. Let me tell you what time it is. First of all, it's time... To wake up. It's time to wake up. And if you have ears to hear, verse 11 is the sound of God's alarm clock. I want you to notice how it begins. It begins with two words, do this. Now don't miss the context. Remember to whom Paul is speaking. When you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, therefore, my brethren, he begins a new section in Romans, what we've called the applicational or practical section of Romans. He is speaking to the body of Christ, to the church at Rome, and by extension, every person here this morning. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now underscore he is writing to save people, because unsaved people cannot wake up until they are born again. An unsaved person, Paul says, is dead in his trespasses and sins. And dead people don't wake up physically, and they don't wake up spiritually apart from the miracle of a second birth. And so while non-Christians are described as dead in the Bible, Christians sometimes are described as sleeping spiritually, and they need to wake up. Paul has already told us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. And in essence, he's saying, look, don't let the world shape you. This will be the major point of the passage that we're studying this morning. Don't let the world shape you. Wake up to God's truth and to God's plan for your life. Francis Schaeffer did a series back in the 1970s, How Should We Then Live? I watched it as a new believer. And he wrote a book and a Bible study, and it had a profound influence on Christians across America. And just before he died and went to heaven in the mid-80s, he wrote these words. In a declining culture, one of its characteristics is that the ordinary people are unaware of what is happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as yet have no answers. Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and is unconcerned as a silverfish in a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He's not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him a false security. This is his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man has become a spectator of world events, observing on his television or computer screen without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our time pass before his eyes while he sips his beer in a comfortable recliner. He doesn't seem to realize what is happening. He does not understand that his world is on fire and it is about to be burned up. Now that's true of the unsaved man. He is really asleep, dead asleep in the arms of the evil one until his eyes are opened and his spirit is awakened through the truth of the gospel and his faith in Christ. But the born again Christian is to be different. Wake up, Paul is saying. Wake up and consider what time it is. When I look out at these services and in Bluffton and these two services this morning and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have gathered, I think what could happen to the people of Community Bible Church if we would wake up? Oh, God, help us to wake up. I was so encouraged last week with your enthusiasm for Friend Day and the people that you brought and reached out to. What if we had that passion, that enthusiasm week after week after week after week after week? Listen, that's our commission, to take the gospel to every man and woman and boy and girl in our community who will listen But I fear that many of God's people are more interested in their Facebook page and their football team with their favorite television show than they really are in the souls of fallen men. Do you remember what Napoleon said when he looked out over China? Let me read the quote. He said, There lies a sleeping giant, and let him sleep because if he awakens, he will shake the world. And no doubt the devil could say the same, about the body of Christ. There lies a sleeping giant. And let him sleep because if he awakens, she will shake the world. In many ways, I believe that we are not as awake as we need to. That in some ways, we are a sleeping giant. God wants us to hear today, we need to wake up. And the reason so many are asleep is they've become anesthetized to the spirit of this age and they don't even know they are asleep we're bombarded all around us by amusements. You know what the word amusement means? Muse, from the Latin that means to think. You put the alpha prefix before it and it literally means not to think. We're a generation living in oblivion. We're really not thinking and we are amusing ourselves to death, but we're not totally surprised because Jesus said in the last of the last days this would become more and more a characteristic of the society there in the Olivet Discourse, he said, because lawlessness is increased, because sin grows, most people's love will grow cold. Now, if they needed to wake up in the Apostle Paul's day, how much more in our day? If you are just slightly familiar with the Bible, if you know just a little bit of Bible prophecy, then you know that the stage is being set for the end of the ages. Now, carefully notice what Paul says to us here in verse 11. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Why is that, Paul? Notice four. Here's the reason. Or you could say because now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. What does he mean when he says salvation is nearer to us than when we believed? You see that here in verse 11? He's speaking here of a future dimension of salvation. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm confused, Paul. You've been saying all along that we've already been saved, that we have been justified, past tense, declared righteous by faith, and that we have peace with God. Not the peace of God, but peace with God. We can have both, of course. So what do you mean we are nearer to salvation than when we first believed? Are you confused? And I can see Paul with a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye, and he'd say, Oh, no, 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 it's not me that are confused. It's you that are confused. The brash evangelist says, Are you saved? And you ought to be able to say no and yes. Really, in reverse order, you should say yes. And then no, yes, in the sense that I have been saved from the penalty my sin deserves, God in his grace and mercy through faith in Jesus Christ, by the shed blood of Christ and his affirming resurrection, a declaration of his deity. Yes, I have been saved. And so Paul said in Romans 5, having been justified, past tense, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus. That's why he said in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Once again, a past tense. If you've received God's free gift of salvation, then you have been saved. And so my answer would be, be yes, I have been saved through the guilt of my sin, through my faith in the work of Christ but I will someday in the future be saved. That has not yet been happened. That is what Paul is speaking about, this salvation that is still in the future, that is nearer to us than when we first believe, when our bodies will be resurrected and we will literally walk on streets of gold. Now, salvation, if you know your Bible, it's a very big word in the New Testament. I have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. I am being saved in the presence as God forms me and shapes me into the image of Christ. We typically refer to that as sanctification. But some glorious day, I will be saved in the future from the very presence of sin. Now, the sanctification aspect, the current aspect, the present tense of salvation is what the apostle Peter speaks of. He said, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, by the word, you may grow in respect to your salvation. Is it any reason the devil wants the Bible shut across America in churches? Because the Bible is the tool, not only of conversion, but to grow people in respect to our salvation. But verse 11 here is referring to that future dimension of salvation, glorification. Now follow this. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are immediately justified in your spirit. And so Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23 speaks of the spirits of just men made perfect. Immediately, instantaneously, in a moment's time, my spirit was saved, and it is as saved as it will ever be. It is perfect. But my soul... My mind, will, and emotions is still being shaped. It's being conformed to the image of Christ as I grow. That is a work in progress as God makes me more and more like Jesus Christ. And so while I am immediately justified in my spirit, I am being progressively justified or sanctified in my soul, but the part that's in the worst shape is my body. (laughs) He hasn't even started yet on that. That is still out in the future. And so think this through. In Romans 8, we studied it many, many months ago. In verse 22, Paul said, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. It's really graphic language. The creation is groaning and suffering. And so there are earthquakes and droughts and tsunamis and floods. And because when man fell, all of creation fell with it. But someday God is going to redeem the creation. And not only will he redeem the creation and make it like the Garden of Eden once was, he's going to redeem us. And so in the next verse he says, and not only this, not only is creation groaning, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, the payment. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You could substitute the word salvation there for the word redemption. We're awaiting the salvation of our body. And so salvation in that sense is nearer to us than when we believed. God is going to finish. It's going to be a complete package. Paul said in Philippians 3, speaking of our body and the completion of our salvation, that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In a moment's time, in the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink, God will complete your salvation someday. Your sin nature will be forever gone, and this mortality will take on immortality. And what God began, he will finish because he that began a good work in you will, 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 will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's an absolute promise that what God started, he is going to finish. We will be perfect in our glorified body. And that day is nearer to us than when we first believed. So understand God's alarm clock. This could be completed at any moment. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It could happen before this day is over. And it's important that when you think about the return of Christ, you need to think of it in two parts. There's what we call the rapture of the church, and then there is what we typically refer to the second coming. Some group the two together, and they just refer to the second coming program. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And as you read the New Testament, it's obvious that the writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, believed that it could happen at any moment. So Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he told them that they might indeed be alive when Jesus returned. In fact, he might be alive. Listen to what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's addressing those who have already died, gone to heaven. The Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall come up first. And then we who are alive. So Jesus is going to bring back with him those who have died, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Those who are in heaven are not yet in their resurrected bodies. They're awaiting the resurrection of their body, but someday those departed souls and spirits will come back from heaven, reconnect wherever that body is on the earth, God will raise it up, and those of us who are alive will meet them, will be caught up in the air. We call that the rapture. Now there are some Christians who make the rapture and the second coming all one big event. And they don't properly separate the two because they are separated in the Scripture. Listen, the church at Thessalonica knew about a resurrection. That was plainly taught in the book of Job, and it's taught in the Torah. It was taught in places like Daniel chapter 12. They knew of the bodily resurrection. That was not new. And so they knew there had to be more than one event, and they were trying to understand the order of events, which tells you there was more than one event out there in the future. But there are Christians who group them all together. Augustine was the first to do this in the fourth century. He said, well, when you interpret the Bible, you interpret it literally, grammatically, historical, historically, in its context, that's a good word, except prophecy. He said, prophecy, you interpret it in a different way. You allegorize it, you spiritualize it. Oh, no, 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 no. All 300-plus prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ were literally actually fulfilled, just as God wrote them. And God gave us a pattern in the New Testament as to how to understand Scripture, that unless there is some symbol or some metaphor that is clear, you just take it in its grammatical, historical context for exactly what it says. And so when you see the New Testament writers and even the Lord Jesus interacting with the Old Testament, they literally interpret prophecy. And so the next great event is the rapture. Now, Christians, if you've not heard it yet, they'll say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It must mean that it's not a biblical truth. It is true that it is a non-biblical word, but it summarizes a biblical truth. Like the word Trinity like the word missions, like the word eternal security, like the term original sin. Those are non-biblical theological words found nowhere in the Bible, but they capsulize biblical teaching. In fact, the word rapture comes from the 4th century Latin Vulgate version that Jerome did. He put the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic scriptures into Latin. And when Paul said, for we shall all be caught up, He used the Latin word raptora for the Greek word harpazo. Look, I don't care what you call it. You can call it the rapture of the church. You can call it the catching up of the church, but it is imminent. It can happen at any moment. Here's a chart to help you to see the distinction between the two. At the rapture, the Lord Jesus comes for his church. He is coming back to take us to heaven. We shall meet the Lord in the air. We just read that. But at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will come back with his church and he will literally actually physically come to the earth. And so Zechariah, the prophet could say this in that day, his feet, speaking of Messiah will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the East. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from East to West by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. The very mountain that Jesus physically actually ascended to heaven from, that we stood on just a few weeks back, he is actually going to come and stand upon. He is coming to that place. Now there's a lot that has to be fulfilled for that to happen for the second coming to unfold, there's all kinds of prophecy. It is a predicted program. For instance, there must be a one world leader known as the Antichrist. There will be a one world religion. There will be a one world government. There will be a one world economy where no one will be able to buy or sell anything unless they take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. All of that will take place during a framework that Jesus called the great tribulation quoting the prophet Daniel for instance Jesus when he spoke to the churches in the revelation in Revelation 3 and in verse 10 he spoke of that hour of testing which would come upon the whole world and he was not simply speaking to that one church because he closed it by saying let those who have ears to hear listen to what he says not to the church but to the churches to this church to churches across the world There has never been a time in all of recorded human history where there's been a time of testing that has come upon the whole world. And so the rapture is pictured in the Bible as happening before the second coming. And that's why there's a sense of imminency that it could happen today. When Paul wrote the church at Philippi, he said in Philippians 4, The Lord is near. The Apostle James put it this way, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The Apostle Peter said this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The Apostle John said this in his first letter, Children, it is the last hour. And even the Lord Jesus Himself, in the final closing verses of the Revelation, He said, Yes! I am coming quickly. And John the Apostle, believing it, could say, Amen, Lord, even so, come, Lord Jesus. He knew that Jesus could come imminently. There's never, ever, ever in the history of the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost ever been a single prophecy linked to the rapture. It could have happened at any moment. But there's all kinds of things still out in the future that have to happen for the second coming. Who would have ever dreamed after 1,900 years of being scattered around the world that in May of 1949, God would reaffirm Israel in the land? Who would have believed it? The preachers of that day believed it because they had been preaching it for hundreds of years and they were laughed at. But God's Word taught it. Who would have ever believed? that we would have gone from some 600,000 Jews in 1949 to over 6 million Hebrew people living on that piece of real estate. God allowed communism to fall and he allowed Jewish people from all over the world. And you go to Israel today. Why'd you come? I don't know why I came. God put in eagerness and the desire in my heart to come here why because God is setting the stage and before it there can be a spiritual rebirth there must be a physical regathering of Israel who would have ever believed that the permissiveness of Noah's day would come to our day who would have ever believed that the perversion of Lot's day would come to our day. Well, you should believe it because Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now I understand God's timetable is different from ours. Peter said, do not let this one fact escape your notice, brethren, beloved, that with the Lord one day is His 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is His one day. Nonetheless, I recognize it is much later in the age than many of us probably realize. Listen, when you go into Walmart in October and the Christmas decorations go up, you know Thanksgiving is near. Why is that? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And so when you see God setting the stage as we have in our lifetime and this generation literally fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy for the second coming, then you know that the rapture of the church is that much more imminent. God is setting the stage for the final drama of the ages. And so you don't need to be asleep and a day of lethargy and a day when men's hearts are growing cold. You need to be awake because it could happen at any moment. An expectant mother came in this morning very pregnant. There are some here in this service. And good news, ladies, you won't be pregnant forever. That baby will come. But you know a mother often thinks, I wonder if today will be his or her birthday. I wonder if when I go to sleep tonight that that little baby will decide to come. Who knows? Maybe today that child will come. We are to be like the expectant mother. Who knows, maybe Jesus will come today. Maybe He'll come sometime tomorrow. Someday He will come. He'll take you either by death or rapture. But He will come and you will have your last day on earth. And so you could paraphrase verse 11. He's saying, look at the time. Look at the hour. It's it's the hour for you to awaken from your passivity. It's the hour for you to awaken from your complacency, from your apathy. Why? Because salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So wake up. Don't be sleeping when the Lord Jesus comes. Wake up. Look at the spiritual opportunity around you. That's the first truth. It's time to wake up. But not only is it time to wake up, I want you to see today, it is time to get up. You see, it's one thing to wake up and have your eyes open, but it's quite another thing to get up out of that bed. Look, if you will now, at verse 12. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, get up. And go to work. It's one thing trying to wake up. It's another thing to get up and to go to work. And by the way, this is a common problem today amongst Christians. We come to church and we listen to our adult Bible fellowship teacher and he, he stirs us. We come to the church and we hear the choir sing and they awaken us. We come and we hear the preacher preach and he wakes us up. But while he wakes us up, we don't always get up. We just, when it's all over, we roll over back in bed and we yawn in the face of God Almighty.
1: It is time to wake up and see the need for Christ in our culture. And tomorrow when we continue our message entitled God's Clock, Pastor Brogy will show that it's also time to get up and do something about our spiritual condition. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Romans series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request program ROM64 on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like Pastor Brogi to answer personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to the Bible line online at WAGP.net. Tomorrow we continue our message, God's Clock, part of our ongoing study in Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.